Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com, and it features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on Music Life Radio, we feature legendary pinball game designer Steve Ritchie. Steve is also a Coast Guard Vietnam veteran and rock musician. He started his pinball career at Atari in 1976 and quickly began designing his own games. Steve now works at Stern Pinball, where he recently designed the ACDC Pinball Game. Sit back and enjoy this episode of Music Life Radio entitled Back in Black, The Steve Ritchie Story. Let's talk about your childhood, where you grew up, and uh, any kind of life-defining moments that captured your attention. Um, I had a great childhood. I was uh, I had two parents who loved me, a great family. Um, you know, no complaints. I grew up in, well, I was born in San Francisco. I lived there until I was five years old and still remember things like my father taking me to Playland at the beach to play pinball machines and... Uh, uh, anyway, we moved to Pacifica, California, like uh, a small town called Lindemar, part of Pacifica. And then our house was like two miles from the beach in a valley with big mountains all around. And um, I like, uh, my father got a motorcycle when I was only 10 years old. And he was the best dad in the world, okay. He let me ride it. And it was, you know, it's not one of the, it's not like a big giant Harley Davidson. It was like a seven and a half horsepower thing called a trailblazer, you know. I mean, if it fell over, I could pick it up. It weighed about 100 pounds. And, uh, <laughs> but it wasn't a mini bike either. I mean, it was like, it was a decent, you know, motorcycle. It could go 35 miles an hour. So I learned how to ride it in the dirt. And then, you know, so I grew up, like, with a, you know, taking this thing with a friend or two even on the back and going over the mountains, you know, um, down to towns, on the other side because the mountains were open. You could do anything you wanted. And every day was an adventure, and it was just great fun. Uh, the things about uh, about my life that I remember growing up are like playing in bands, okay? When the Beatles happened in 1963, um, I wanted a guitar. And my, my mom and my dad are both like, our whole family's musical. So I had already learned how to play the harmonica and the Hawaiian steel guitar, and both my sister and I were taking lessons, and... You know, it's like, we got to be very good, but when I was 13, the day I heard the Beatles, I want to hold your hand, I wanted to play a regular guitar. And so uh, my mom said, okay, we'll get you a guitar. And she got, you know, actually it was my dad. He said my, a friend of his bought an electric guitar, an amplifier, and decided he wasn't going to, you know, learn how to play. So he lent them to me, and I ended up having it for a year. So oh, I kind of learned how to play my the guitar in my bedroom with a, with a chord book, and I remember um, Meet the Beatles and Rubber Soul. I just played those cuts over and over again until I learned them, um, those songs. And uh, so it's like, you know, uh, after about, I don't know, seven or eight months, I found out other kids in my neighborhood, you know, were like playing music. So, you know, we started these garage bands, and I would go and play there, and uh, I don't know, just have some fun and, uh, and learn from other people. Um, and I took a few guitar lessons, but I don't know. The guy was like, we only had one guitar teacher in our town, and he was like a dork. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> he was just a dork. He didn't. He wouldn't teach me anything I wanted to learn. You know, I wanted to learn. You know, I wanted to learn how to lead. You know, how to play a solo. And he really didn't know how himself. So it's like, you know, okay, I wasn't going to learn much from him. But like, let's see. I, I could say that. Um, well, as far as pinball goes, my parents uh, belong to a bowling league, and so, you know, from like nine years old to, I don't know, 
13 or 14, I would go with them to the Sea Bowl, and uh, I would play pinball machines while they were bowling. And they'd give me like a dollar, which was a lot of money. And, uh, but, but games were like 10 cents a game, uh, three for a quarter. So I could play for a long time, and I just learned how to play pretty good, not great, just pretty good, good enough to make it last for an hour or so, you know, while they were bowling. And, uh, and that's about it for that question. Um, ne the next question you ask is, what music were you influenced by growing up? And, uh, wow, so much. Okay. When I was a kid, um, like I said, my mom, uh, you know, well, she was big into music. She played the piano, but she also had a beautiful soprano voice, and she would sing at church and stuff. Oh wow! And uh, it was it was amazing. Okay, um, and she uh, I don't know she was just you know extremely talented and uh, so and we had a huge record collection. I mean she was listening to Elvis, okay, and Johnny Cash and Mario Lanza and you know a lot of other opera singers. Uh, um, we just had you know well I'm trying to think of other other things. I mean it was all over the place. We you know she had a box of 45s with you know like Flying Purple People Eater and um, uh, you know uh, the songs of the day, the 50s. You know and um, but almost all rock and and that sort of stuff. Um, <clears throat> And then, you know, after the Beatles happened, wow, uh, I was a fan of uh, the Beatles, the Searchers, I really liked, you know, you know, we thought Herman's Hermits were, was cool for one song, but then they were dorks on TV somehow. <laughs> then we liked the Rolling Stones, definitely. I'm thinking about me and my friends and the bands that I was in and stuff, and, uh, you know, we, we we weren't really a fan of Elvis Presley. We We were definitely fans of English music, and a lot of things happened, you know. At, at that point, um, wow, uh, a ton of bands, I'm trying to think of everything I played, all the music, I mean, I, I, I sort of got stuck in an R&B band when I was in the Coast Guard later, but that was much later, so most of the time I played rock, English rock, I really loved all those bands, and we tried, you know, to do our harmony, we liked, you know, uh, the Mamas and the Papas when they had a couple of hits. I'm taking now in high school, okay, and bands I was in in high school, some of them were just thrown together for a performance at, you know, at high school events, so I would do that, and then, um, you know, some of the bands that were popular, like in my area in San Jose, California, were like the 13th Floor Elevator. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and the Chocolate Watch Band. Can you talk about wh what is it about music? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? Wow, it means everything. But I can't hear it anymore, and I can't play it, unfortunately, because I can't hear pitch anymore. It was a big loss. I mourned it for a long time, but I don't anymore just because, you know, I can't stay, you know, thinking about that. Um, I just can't. What happened to your hearing? Well, I got Meniere's disease in 1994. That's when I began to get it. But I still played music until, like, 1999 well, or something. I, I even played a little past that, you know, here and there. But but I have Meniere's disease, so it's like pitch, and uh, I have really bad, you know, tinnitus and very narrow bands of uh, frequencies that I can hear now. And uh, some people say tinnitus, but it's like ringing in my ears. That's like, I don't know if you can imagine this, but you're staying in a hotel three floors above... New York City, uh, Times Square, and you open up the window, and that's what I hear, the roar of traffic. Sometimes I even hear a siren when I'm, woo, 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 in time with my heartbeat and stuff like that. I mean, it's like, you know, and then lots of other, you know, real high frequencies, but mostly this big roar, you know. So, luckily, I can block that, <clears throat> and I don't hear it in my normal, you know, everyday life unless I think about it, but I don't think about it. Do you block it mentally, or are you using are the uh, uh, hearing no, aids? No, it's thing. It's like if you, you know, people with Meniere's disease have committed suicide over the ringing in their ears. Yeah. Because they can't block it, they focus on it, it drives them crazy, okay? Mm -hmm. Me, I'm lucky. I can block it easily. I don't even think about it. And when I do think about it, I can make it, you know, I can ignore it or not as I choose. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. Yeah. So, um, and I'm not saying I'm superior to the people that can't. I'm just saying, you know, things happen. Humans are different. There's no question. 
Oh, certainly. Yeah, you just learn to deal with it, and that's. I'm glad you're able to do that. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> I continued to play music, and I was in uh, in bands. Uh, wow, I don't know. Music is like um, it's a passion. That's what it is. Just like making pinball machines. I loved to play music. I loved it. I loved to, you know, to try and get better at it. And you know, making a re- you know a recording or a pinball machine is. Is uh, I mean, you theoretically, you can make a perfect recording if you keep doing all the tracks over again until they're all perfect. So I don't know. It's, it was fun. It's fun to do that. It's fun to play. You know, uh, to harmonize. It's fun to solo and improvise. It's fun to. I don't know. It just sounds beautiful to me, and uh, it sounds beautiful. And uh, I, I guess, you know, I don't know. Working with the same, you know, people's, you know, honing it into a a, a, a machine that can play, you know, this perfect music is awesome. So you're really just driven by the passion, the uh, the creative aspect of it, you know, the just wanting to create, period. Is that it? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a lot of tunes, um, not a lot of lyrics, hardly ever, but I, I wrote a lot of melodies and, and whole songs. And, um, and some of them appear in my pinball machines. I didn't quit writing uh, when I when I stopped playing music. In fact, I really didn't quit playing music until I couldn't anymore. I was in a band right up till the time when I couldn't hear pitch with Meniere's disease. And it wasn't always like that. When I first got it, I could hear. The first five or six years, I could still hear pitch. And it would come and go a few times. And Actually, the last time pitch recognition came back to me was for a couple of months in 2010. Oh, okay. Wow. I played in bands in high school, but you don't know them. I did play in bands that got pretty big later, like Sweet Asylum and uh, Legs Diamond. And those two ga- and bands we did pretty well with. And, uh, you know, uh, but they went on to cut records and I didn't. I quit. Uh, it was it, horrible personalities and I don't know. That was over. Was that uh, before you joined the Coast Guard or after? Oh, uh, it was after. What made you join the Coast Guard, and, and when was that? Right out of high school? Yeah, I mean, I graduated. Um, I skipped a grade when I was in second grade, so I was like the youngest person in my class always. And I also had enough credits to graduate early, you know. So I almost had a whole year out of out of high school. I went back to graduate in June, but I almost had a whole year, and then. I don't know. I wanted to get out and and go have an adventure. And you know, the Vietnam draft was still on too. This was in 1967, and um, I just thought, well, you know, my dad went in the Navy. All my uncles were either each one of them. Then one went in the Marine Corps. One went in the Army. One was in the Army Air Corps. One was in the Navy, and uh, and so I would be the guy that goes in the Coast Guard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But anyway, I thought it was a good service, and it is a good service. It's like it serves a, a lot of people in many ways. It's not just a, a war machine. It's you know, it's it involves search and rescue and life saving and aids to navigation and um, just countless other things that um, that benefit humanity. And uh, and in some cases, you know, the animal world too. They're like just a good service, and um, but they were called to. Uh, you know, to duty in Vietnam, just like any other service, and uh, and I was called to to go there also, and uh, so I spent a year there. I, I joined in 1968. I think I was I was still 17. I mean, I joined way before that, but they wouldn't let me in until you know a new company was forming, and it was like a few days before my birthday, my 18th birthday. Oh wow! So I was I went to boot camp in Alameda and. You know, it's like a rude awakening. Top <laughs> <laughs> on my hair, it was like way longer than shoulder length, blonde. You know, it's like, you know, and they cut it all off. And then I remember one day some, you know, some uh, company commander, which, we, you know, he was an enlisted man, but, you know, he was a company commander because he was in charge of us. Yeah. And he, he, one day he goes, where's that faggot that has the long hair? And I could not <laughs> raise my hand. <laughs> <laughs> didn't remember who it was. I mean, you, you just look so radically different that he didn't know it was me, and I, and I didn't know enough to it. And I'll tell you what, here's the madness, okay, of any boot camp, especially in the 60s. I mean, they didn't do anything. You know, I mean, they didn't change at all from 
like World War II to, you know, right on through the 60s. It was just, you know, mean as hell, a lot like what you see um, in Full Metal Jacket, that kind of stuff. It looks looks fake, but actually they have more time to spend on you in the Coast Guard because there aren't very many people. And there's like, uh, in the morning we would have, like, there would be six companies of about 70 guys, okay, and that was the whole damn crew for months and months and months. That's all the people they brought into the Coast Guard for like six months, okay? And they had a crew there of hundreds of guys who were stationed there to work on, you know, the ships to be gunner's mates and, and bosun's mates and all this other stuff. But then they also doubled as company commanders, and they were like old bastards, you know? <laughs> like, we're toughest. And it's like in the morning we would have inspection, and... um. There would be like, you know, you have to stand on squares, and um, they would inspect you, and you can't have a single thread on the place. You can't have a, a peel back your T-shirt to look and see if you have any, if it's brown or dirty or anything. It's like one morning, I mean, uh, I mean, what they do is they tell you to run in place or, you know, just start doing push-ups if they find one thing wrong with you. Well, I'll tell you what, they find one thing wrong with every single person in the, in the crew. That's it. They, and so it's madness. And, and one morning it was like this guy had a dirty shirt and a dirty hat. You know, one of those Dixie Cup Navy hats? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, totally, yeah. So he's like, you know, they they pulled up his T-shirt over his head and then tucked the Dixie Cup hat around it, sealing it on his head, okay? And then they made him lie in the gutter, okay? It was on a regular street. Lie in the gutter, and he had to kick his arms and legs up in the air and say, Sir, I'm a dying cockroach, sir, over and over and over. Wow. And you you have to stand there. I mean, it's madness, okay? Everybody else is going on. They're counting off how many push-ups they're doing and everything. And if you laugh or anything, they just, oh, they they, they drag your ass down there. You, You end up doing it with them, you know? Anyway, it was ridiculous. Yeah, I can I can kind of relate to that. I went to you know Coast Guard Academy, and um, I'm sure it wasn't as brutal as what you experienced, but it was still a lot of monkey business going on. Oh, hey, I know I know some cadets, and their lives were miserable, maybe more miserable than mine, with this bracing up and all that. I mean, it's like yeah. they told me all about it, and uh, we had to do it for an entire year. As a you know, our first year at the academy, we had to do the bracing up and all that stuff. It was it was crazy. I do think, and don't you, that it's good for discipline? Oh yeah, I mean it. It really gets everybody on the same page. I mean, the best friends I have in the world are you know my Coast Guard buddies. Yeah, yeah. It's like you uh, you definitely learn to act. You know what I mean? You learn a lot of things. You learn how to you know if you're not doing something you should be, then you try to do it for the rest of your life. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. And I think when things go wrong, you are far better prepared to deal with them than the average person. Far more likely to stay calm and react in a in a good way, in a positive way, in a constructive way than some destructive idiot who's yelling and screaming because he led a pampered life and always got his way. Yeah, exactly. It is good for us. What was your rating? Were you electronics tech? Yeah, I was an ET3, and I had a chance to go to OCS and didn't take it. My IQ was was one six three, and they freaked out. They brought me in a room. And they go, okay, so what do you want to do? They're, it's like I didn't even know. I didn't know that my IQ was one sixty three. Yeah. So it's like they didn't tell me anything either. They just said, okay, we're going to send you to as many schools as possible. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, I don't know if that's good or bad. I wanted to go be on a boat and rescue people and have an adventure. You know, <laughs> I got that later. Didn't get it right away, so they kept sending me to schools and schools and schools. Damn. Anyway. Was ET school something that you were interested in, or is that something they said, wow, you're really smart, we're going to send you to that, without even really considering what you wanted? Yeah, they so they, they, they chose me to be in ET school. They did ask me uh, a few things. They had openings in Corman and uh, Engine Men and that sort of stuff, but they sort of pointed me towards ET because I think they needed them, and I did very well in the school, and then... I did well enough to where they select me for another piece of gear in four more months and uh, of schools, and, you know, I learned about this Loran transmitter, and I asked not to go to Aviation Electronics Technician School. Three of us did. And the day after we did this, this was like the highest-ranked enlisted man in the whole Coast Guard. He was, he was a, um, you know... Super chief, and uh, his name was Potagio, and we went to see him, and he was so nice, you know, and friendly to us, you know, and he goes, come by in the morning, boys, and I'll have some orders for you. <laughs> so we came by in the morning, and they were for Vietnam, a Loran station. 
Yeah, wow. And they what? did say that it was, I mean, they told us in the Coast Guard, they said, you know, it's all volunteer going to Vietnam, but, but it really wasn't. <laughs> I found out from everybody, <laughs> they just sucked up whoever they wanted. Yeah. And But that's okay. You know, it was an interesting experience. So I went there for a year, and we built a Loran station, Loran C transmitter, which is gigantic piece of machinery. Uh, you know, it wouldn't fit in your house. It's, you know, probably 5,000 square feet of equipment necessary um, and everything's huge because it's such a low frequency. Uh, the antenna was 1,325 feet tall, and I got to climb that. It was pretty cool to go up that high. You know, we had huge, you know, cat generators, four of them, big enough to walk into, you know, <laughs> and make repairs in the crankcase. They cracked me up. They were like three stories high. It, that's because the trans, transmitter um, put out a, a, a megawatt, one million watts. That's huge. Plus we were drawing power, and uh, the cool thing was the equipment had to be temperature controlled, so everything was air conditioned. It was very nice that way. <laughs> Probably the only air conditioned place, you know, well, one of the few in, in Vietnam. Yeah. You know, unless you yeah. went to the cities like Da Nang or, or Phu Bai, there was just no place that was air conditioned. Anyway, I didn't have to kill anybody. It was, it was interesting. I learned a lot of stuff, there's no doubt. Oh, you had a story about, uh, I would guess this is after Vietnam, um, you were on a hovercraft, the Coast Guard hovercraft? Yeah, when I got back from Vietnam, uh, it, it was great. I, I remember that I could not speak to anyone for about a week because I had nothing to say. I just had nothing to say because um, it was a whole new world. After you go, you know, uh, to a place like that, you have nothing in common with anybody when you come home, nothing. Uh, I couldn't speak to my parents very much. I just said, you know, it's great to be home and stuff like that. And I just had no, I had no base on which to have conversations, which was bizarre. But I got over it. And then, um, anyway, when I get back, when anybody gets back in the Coast Guard from Vietnam or a war zone, they give you any duty you want. They say, where do you want to go? And we'll send you there and you can be there for the duration of your hitch. And I said, wow, that's great. Well, first of all, I want to go to San Francisco, I guess, base San Francisco, and, uh, you know, they had small boats there, rescue boats and that sort of stuff, and I was going to work on their uh, their equipment, and it was, you know, land-based. It was kind of cool. But then after I was there for only about two weeks, they came to me and they said, we have a billet opening on the um, you know, uh, air cushion vehicle evaluation unit. Would you like to join that? And I said, yeah, that sounds great. I had seen it running around the bay. And these guys are cool, man. They were like blue coveralls. They, they didn't have to get haircuts. <laughs> and then, I mean, it was like, you know, great, it looked like great duty, and, you know, people were in awe, the rest of the people in the Coast Guard, you know, I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, pilots, uh, you know, <clears throat> they, they get, you know, a lot of, you know, just attention, and um, the hovercraft guys got incredible attention. I, it's not that I really wanted that, but I just thought, that's got to be cool, it's got to be fun, and it's got to be an adventure, and it was, it was great. I I learned to be uh, first a, um, uh, the SAR man, the search and rescue guy, um, and um, I quickly worked my way up to radar navigator, which is not that fun, because there's a big rubber boot on the uh, on the radar system, you sit just to the right, or the left of the pilot, and uh and uh, you, you have to stick your face in this rubber thing and watch every second to see what's on radar. You know, you, you get to come up for air every once in a while to check things visually. And uh, anyway, when you ever you hit a bump, it like the whole rubber thing would collapse, and you wouldn't get hurt, but it would like just put a big red mark on your face. You know, the shape <laughs> of the <laughs> the rubber thing. You know, <laughs> that's um, funny. We. Uh, we, it was a wonderful thing, actually, because the hovercraft was fast. When people were in trouble, when boats were burning, we could get there and, um, you know, put out the fire and save the people much sooner than anything else. Even, even our, um, I mean, in San Francisco Bay, we could be on scene quicker than a helicopter because we didn't have to take off. We just, you know, took off from this ramp and, blah, you know, 65 or 70 knots across the bay. That's fast, and you don't have to slow down, you know, and... Uh, you know, and, and drop your altitude or anything like that. You don't have to, you know, I mean, there's minimal traffic. You can get there faster. So um, that was great and very rewarding. We saved a lot of people's lives. Sometimes, though, we'd get, like, loony bins that would call the Coast Guard, and uh, 
we'd get to their big old sailboat, and it would be on its side, on a tidal flap. And they would say, oh, can you rescue us? And we would say, is anyone hurt? <laughs> no, we're just stuck here in the mud. Um, I'm sorry, sir, but we're going to have to let you wait uh, for the tide to come back in. So they have to sit there. But it's like, these are fools. Uh, you know, there are plenty of fools out ready to sail without paying attention to charts, weather, yeah. notifications, uh you know, a radio, whatever. They they just take off and go, and um, and they run into trouble in the ocean, especially in the San Francisco Bay. is a very dangerous place, very dangerous. It's like uh, they call it the potato patch right underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. This is a little tiny uh, opening, okay, and behind it is a huge, gigantic bay, the Sassoon Bay, uh, the San Francisco Bay, Oakland Bay. Uh, all the way out to San Jose, almost up to Sacramento, okay? So you have this little opening a mile wide, and all this water can't make up its mind whether it's coming and going, and it's coming and going twice a day. So, if you know, somebody would jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, often their bodies would be sucked down to the bottom of the ocean and stay down there for a number of days because the currents were so crazy. And uh, it's just a dangerous place to be altogether, but beautiful. So, um, anyway, we got to take the hovercraft up to Alaska, which was wonderful. We were on uh, an ice island, and everyone in the crew got to fly it. I got to fly. I got, like, 39 hours of flying it, and um, they wanted me to re-enlist in order to get that 40th operator, uh, 40th hour and my operator certificate. I couldn't do it. I didn't want to do it. I just I wanted to get out and, and be a free man again. And Although sometimes I regret it, I have to say. Sometimes I regret it. I could have retired a long time ago. I was young. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I mean, that would have been kind of cool. But, you know, I've also had a great life here making pinball. So, um, you know, what can I say? Yeah, exactly. So you were in for four years? Four years, yes, sir. Yeah. And then when you got out, did you – I know this is when you started playing in Sweet Asylum and Legs Diamond. Can you talk just a little bit about your experience in those bands? Legs Diamond was first, and uh, we, we did pretty well. We, you know, we opened up for the Doobie Brothers and um, for Les Dudek and several other bands, you know, pretty good in the day. We did all right. We were, we were making some money, but not enough, you know, not enough to keep five guys alive, uh, uh, my wife was working, and I think that's, you know, I don't know, for me, that's, it was a bad situation. I didn't like my wife to work and not me. I, so it, it just felt wrong, so, um, but I did it, and she let me. I did other things to make money. I, I don't know. I was uh, going from door to door selling, uh, you know, uh, stenciling people's addresses on the curb out in front <laughs> of their home. Yeah. And they needed money. I could have a $100 day if I worked really hard, you know. Um, things like that, and you know, we had a plant store. I sold glassware for a while, from door to door, and uh, that that was interesting. I, we did pretty good doing that, and but you know, it's like about 1972, and uh, that, well, that's when I got out. I guess I, you know, I did this for four years or two years. I, you know, I I, I played in bands and odd jobs. Then we had a plant store, but I continued playing in the band whenever I could. I just sort of got tired of, of being poor, and um, I walked into Atari one day. I was looking for work, and, and here's this game company, and I, I had heard of them, but I really didn't know anything about them. I just heard it was a game company. Wow, what could that be? So I walked in the door, and there's all these beautiful girls hanging around. I mean, whoa. And they had, uh, they had the radio, stereo music everywhere in the building, including in the foyer, you know. So you'd walk in, and the place was rocking, you know, from the very beginning. It seemed like, wow, this is serious? I mean, this is like a job? Okay. <laughs> so I, I put in my application for uh, electromechanical technician because that's what they had available, and I got the job. And uh, it, it was great. I mean, in the beginning, it was very interesting. Uh, wow. I'll, I'll tell you this, just because it's... <laughs> this is how it was, okay, in the 70s, dude. Every Friday at Atari, I didn't know it, okay, but there would be this tray, you know, at the end of the testers uh, bench, like a cookie tray, big, and squares, you know, brownies cut up, <laughs> and uh, um, and they were they were made with hash. Yeah, 
And everybody in the place, and I mean everybody, I mean my supervisor who wore a white shirt and tie, uh, Nolan Bushnell, the founder of, uh, of Atari and the inventor of the video game, Coinop, uh, yeah. would eat those brownies. <laughs> <laughs> so you're looking at a madhouse, uh, but they were making so much money that they didn't care about, you know, they, they wanted people to like being there. They didn't pay very well, but... It was a fun place to work, I'm going to say. I mean, it just was. Great time. And I got into some serious product projects because, you know, they, they wanted a universal test fixture for all the games they made, and I designed and built that. And then I built a, uh, a burn-in oven with really high currents and, uh, you know, good learning. It was exciting for me because electrical work is very interesting. You know, it's fun to design these things and follow all the, all the uh, formulas and get it all right and, so that was exciting, and, uh, and one day they came to me, and they said, Steve, we're going to start up a pinball division. Would you like to be part of it? And I said, you bet. That'd be great. And uh, so I was, uh, I guess I was the third pinball employee. I was employee number 50 at Atari. Wow. Um, you know, games division, but for this, I was, I was employee number three of the pinball division. So we started to make a pinball. They got guys from here, from Chicago, from Bally to come out and from Williams and one was a production guy and the other guy told us he was a designer but he wasn't he was a mechanical engineer I found out later <laughs> but anyway he laid out the first game and I built it to his specs and he taught me about how pinball machines go together and um, Nolan Bushnell was crazy he wanted to uh, revolutionize everything so he you know, we we used rotary solenoids instead of linear like everybody else, and they were pathetic. I mean, I, I don't know how he could ever look at them and say, oh, yeah, this is good. Mm. I mean, they broke so often. Uh, it had absolutely no life whatsoever. Um, but it's like he didn't really find this out because he didn't learn about life testing. You know, we put something just on test and count the cycles, and, you know, I mean, pinball companies do this, but they didn't know then, and... I guess the guys from Chicago didn't know or care enough to tell us about that. Yeah. But, um, yeah anyway, uh, after this guy showed me how to, you know, put a pinball machine together, I saw it, and it was Atarians, and it was like kind of a weird game and super wide body, and eh, it didn't play very well, okay? And, uh, you know, Williams and Bally and Gottlieb and uh, even Chicago Coin, okay, had... Some some games that were fun to play, you know, and um, they were they were narrow body, twenty and a quarter inches wide instead of this humongous whatever it was with, and um. Anyway, I I started laying out a game on my own at home, and uh, I brought it to uh, to Nolan Bushnell about a year later while I was doing my work. I at you know at Atari, I worked on this thing at home, so. Uh, my boss said, well, you, you can't uh, be a designer, you know, you, you need a degree in industrial design in order to do that. And I said, well, like, you know, I kind of did this at home. And he goes, no, you're not going to do that. And uh, but I didn't take no for an answer, and I went to Nolan Bushnell. And then I told him, you know, um, and he was impressed that I had done it at home. Um, and, and, you know, he should be, right? I mean, if somebody does that, it means they have some kind of weird passion. I mean, what's the deal? I'm not getting paid. I'm doing my regular job. And, um, and so he said, um, you, can, you can be a game designer, and we're going to get you a, uh, you know, a uh, cubicle and a drafting machine, and you can go for it. And, uh, I had a lot to learn, no question. But, but there were guys around you know, in the drafting department and other places that I could... You know, I, I found out how to draw from them because I really didn't know how to do that either. And, um, and I took some courses, you know. I, I really wanted to, uh, I don't know, I wanted to do well. So my first game is Airborne Avenger, and I meet this guy, Eugene Jarvis, and we, like, get along instantly. And um, he's very creative, and he's interested in pinball like me, and we have lots of ideas together. And uh, so my first project, real project, is his first project in the in coin op business, um, and that was um, you know Airborne Avenger, which is a goofy game. I look at it and I think back, you know, it's some young punk making a pinball machine or doing the best he could, and uh, <laughs> and 
And wow, was that a big spell out. Airborne Avenger. I bet nobody ever spelled that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, the next game was like, uh, well, I started a Whitewood and it was a pile of junk. And then I, I, I made another one and changed about 50% of the game. And only 50% of that was a keeper. So I started over again. All this over the period of six months. And, uh, I, you know, I just I couldn't get it. But in the seventh month, um, I came up with a good system. When I say system, I mean a good geometry where the ball moves around in pleasing manner and uh, the targets are fun and good to shoot at and your rebounds are good and the drains aren't bad and... And everything was right, and I had tweaked it pretty well. And that game was uh, in a contest, and it was between the industrial uh, designer and our team, and uh, and we won, and it became a Superman game. Yeah, I remember that game from my childhood. I loved Superman. That's that's cool. I mean, I, I'm glad you did. It's like it it played pretty good for a wide body, and I, I was the guy that kind of like closed up the wide body flipper area. You know, because a lot of these guys put in scissors flippers, like two on the left and two on the right, and they were all like, you know, you you flip and then the ball goes in between them, and then <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know, it's a, a bad way. To, I mean, I'll tell you what, wide bodies that wide are disgusting. Actually, it's a miracle that anybody ever made a good fun game, and there were some. Superman was okay. Paragon was a good game in a wide body format like that. I really liked Paragon, and, um, you know, that was a Bally game. I, I didn't really like any of the other Atari games, but it didn't matter because um, before I had actually finished Superman, I got an offer to come to Chicago. Oh, wow. One day this guy, Mike Stroll, calls me up, and actually Eugene and I were talking about this, and I said, you know what, we're, ne we're not going to do anything here. This isn't a real pinball company. I want to go to a real pinball company in Chicago and work. And I really didn't want to leave California, but... I did see it as I could I could do this, you know, this job well, and I enjoyed it, and I thought, I don't have a career, and I need one, and, you know, so I'm, I'm interested. And one day they called, and, and actually, we kind of targeted Williams because they needed us more than anybody else. Bally was doing great. Godley was doing great. Williams was floundering. They had lousy... Um, uh, flippers, that's really a basic problem when your company has bad flippers. They were... <laughs> You know, they're built of so many components. They had, like, a bracket for the coil, which was screwed down on the play field. Then you add the pivoting mechanism to, you know, twist the uh, flipper around and make it make it move. And then you have the plunger material, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just a bunch of parts sticking up off the play field instead of the way they are today, a one-piece mechanism you slap down on the play field and put down eight screws. So it was also a mess of alignment problems, all kinds of things. They were the last to adapt, you know, one-piece flipper. And they also used 32 volts, which was weaker than Bally. Bally had 50-volt flippers, so they got lead. And so their flippers were stronger and lasted longer. Anyway, there were lots of reasons uh, why I thought Williams could use this, and, and, and sure as hell, they called me up one day and said, do you want to, you know, meet? And so... I met the president, new president of, of Williams, Mike Stroll, and he brought out uh, Steve Kordak with him. Well, he was like the chief, what they call the chief designer, you know, um, at Williams. He he was, you know, kind of a legendary guy because he had been in the business for so long. i got to tell you something, okay? When I met him, I think he was my age, 62, and he was he was something else. I'll tell you what. He died on Sunday at 100 years old. Oh, Wow. Yeah, he passed away, but it's like, you know, I mean, a hundred years. I mean, the guy was amazing. He was like, energy, energy, energy. He, they had to tell him to get out, I mean, to get him to retire. Yeah. He wow. didn't want to retire. He he was more like a historian of Williams, and nobody had the heart, really, you know, to, to throw him out or anything. But what brought it all down was that, you know, when Williams went out of business, they stopped making coin-operated games. Yeah. And so that's when Steve Kordak actually retired. Anyway... He was uh, he was a character, but uh, a master of clever fixes for problems. You know what I mean? Another creative genius. Yeah, you know it's like he had made 
he had made an awful lot of games, like maybe a hundred. But in those days, they were much simpler. You know, three jabs, two flippers, two slingshots. You know, some other toys, and that's it. You know, almost nothing. They didn't take as long to develop, and they weren't anywhere near as complicated in terms of rules, uh, devices, anything really. Um, there were a couple games that were, but not by Williams. Like uh, when I got there. Well, before I got there, Fireball came out. Have you ever seen one of those? Uh, I believe I have, yeah. It's been, that's got to be a long time ago. It was probably, you know, I mean, it was done with solenoids and, and relays. So the logic was like, I mean, wow, it was really a heavy game. But it had a lot of cool features, and it kind of pushed the limits of pinball. That guy was very good, that, uh, the designer. Anyway, when I, got to, when I got to Williams, the president was, you know, uh, very encouraging and everyone else was extremely difficult. Nobody wanted to do anything the way I wanted them to do it, and, and who am I to say anyway? They had been in business for a long, long time, and I did have a lot to learn, but I also did see the things that I could do, and I kind of changed, you know, how pinballs look and what they do, and I focused on smoothness and shots and uh, instead of erratic stuff, and um, I don't know, I just... I came up with geometric systems and a, you know, and try to package the game um, so that, you know, the sounds you heard and the artwork and the play field and, you know, um, or, you know, anything else I could develop along the same line were a unified product. And before that, you know, the, the designer would just hand over the game to the art department and they'd do what they want, you know. So it was like... Uh, it wasn't like that anymore. I, I tried to get involved in it, you know. Anyway, my first game was Flash, and uh, it, like, was an instant hit. <laughs> it was the best game I ever made, in fact. I mean, it sold 20,000 machines. Oh, wow. Uh, after that, Kordak was pissed at me because I sold his record from Space Mission. You know, I had the, uh, the factory production record, and... It was fun. We invented the flash lamp. I, I wanted that on the plane. Now I figured, okay, I can step on the brake pedal in my car. So why can't we have super bright lights here in a pinball machine? Yeah. And, uh, and we, we put it together and found out how to do it. I didn't. Uh, another guy did. It was just my idea that I wanted these things. I'm making a game called Flash, and I wanted super bright flash lamps in it. So that became reality. And then uh, yeah, it ran for almost a year, okay? It took them a year to build 20,000 pinball machines in the factory. Mm. And, uh, it just uh, it bootstrapped the company up. And I was really proud of it, but I was all ready to get on the next thing because I was kind of, you know, okay, we did that. Now let's do another one. Well, but all of a sudden, they, they said, oh, we need another game from you right away. So <laughs> um, we're going we're gonna to ask you to do a wide body. And uh, okay, so I got like four months to do the wide body where I had eight months to do flash. And... Uh, you know, it wasn't that good, and wide bodies weren't that fun, and it still sold pretty well. I don't, uh, I think it's like 8,000 machines or something, but not the 20,000. So I wanted to, get, wanted to get back to the narrow body machines, and the next, the next game, I, I, you know, I, I was finally able to convince Eugene to come out and work at Williams with me. And when he got there, we had a great time. We, we started making Firepower, and Firepower was a really revolutionary game, and, um, the market was dying back a little bit. There wasn't anything anybody could sell twenty thousand machines in that in that year, which was what I guess nineteen seventy nine or eighty. And uh, but we did very well. With, I, I, I don't know uh, eighteen thousand something machines with firepower, and um, so um, that was cool. After that, uh, they stole Eugene Wen and and. Uh, and got him to do video games in another department. I helped him with one video game. That was Defender. I didn't really do much except for, you know, create, you know, kind of an idea of a world where you flew a ship around. But um, his idea of, you know, of turning them into mutants or, and then killing them and, and, and rescuing the people on the planet was brilliant. And that game did spectacular Meanwhile, I was working with Larry DeMar on the first multi-level pinball machine. A lot of people talked about it, but I was the first guy to do it. And um, it's funny, at Williams, you know, I mean, that sold very well, but then it got copied by uh, by Claude Fernandez, the guy that worked there. He took everything that I had on the game, uh, you know, went to Bally 
and he made Flash Gordon at the same time. And I think it would have gone 20000 for us. Instead, it went 12000 and they sold 8000 Flash Gordon. So <laughs> the total was 20000 but I didn't get it, you know. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> the president was, like, livid when we, we saw it at, at a show. It's like that's when we both debuted, you know, the, uh, the multi-level pinball machines. Anyway, Williams went crazy again, and they go, oh, every game has to be multi-level from now on. <laughs> multi-level, multi-ball, and we made the same game about four or five times there. I didn't. I, uh, I don't remember the next game I made. I think it might have been, hmm, I can't remember what came after the Black Knight. Black Knight's another amazing game that I remember really well. The first two-level machine. Yeah. Uh, you know, the best work I could do. You know, would only yield maybe 6,000 machines. And that's just, you know, that's when I knew the writing was on the wall. And so I, um, I, uh, I did like, you know, I, I, I did a hyperball game. I, that, I think that might have, might have been what was after Black Knight because we weren't selling that many pinballs, in, you know, in that era right then after Black Knight. And so I thought this would be a video game like pinball, but it only went about five or 6,000 machines also. Um, in the meantime, I kind of did the voice for the games that I made. I, you know, I would record, uh, actually Eugene would record, you know, you know, fire, power, you are destroyed. Everything in a monotone voice. Same thing with the Black Knight will slay you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Same thing, you know. And, um, uh, well, Mortal Kombat, I, I did that, the voice for that, and, um, uh, I just that's that's a really fun part of the product, but also I, I wrote some tunes and I you know I like to you know it, it's cool to give you know even though I'm not a sound man and I didn't really write uh, the actual songs I did write the songs but I mean somebody else had to interpret them and embellish them and add a bass line all I did was do the rhythm guitar the chords basically most of the time I did a few leads in Black Knight 2000 you know and we had the ability to play them in 1988. That was a big improvement in our sound system. And, um, I don't know. Anyway, uh, it's about 1996. Things were getting kind of, you know, freaky. 1997 at, uh, at Williams. And I started looking for work because they let my contract run out. Not because they wanted me to go anywhere, but because they just forgot about it. Mm. So... I just thought, you know what, I'm going to go back to California. I want to go back to California. So I, I went back to Atari, who was in the business of making video games only, and, you know, I, uh, I was looking at a job to be a producer there and, uh, you know, run a team and, uh, and make a video game. And I, uh, you know, I almost got the job, and, and I just uh, I came back from a trip, and the president calls me in his office, and he goes, so you're looking for work at Atari, and I'm totally embarrassed, you know. And then he goes, we bought them yesterday. <laughs> okay, great, Ken. Thanks. And, uh, and he goes, but if you want to go out there, I'm okay with it. You've done a good job here. You can go out there and, and work and uh, do the best you can on uh, producing some video games, uh, which was wonderful. I made great money, and um, Atari was always worried about me. They always thought I was a spy from the mother company, but really I was just there to make games, and I made California Speed, and we started, which did very well, and we, it was a driving game with blue seats, linked driving game, you could race other people, and, uh, and then we did uh, a game called Mean Streak, and, uh, but, but it never got finished because that was, uh, I was close, but uh, they closed everything down, and I was one of the first employees to be let go because I made a lot of money, and, you know, that was okay. Yeah. So after that, I began to consult, and I made some redemption games and that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, eventually I, I found my way to Stern in 2001 and started contracting to do designs here. You know, it was good. It was good life. I got to live in California but work here, although I would have to say that I actually spent six months of my life here in Chicago and six months in California. Yeah. That's a lot of time away. It's a lot of time of, of living in the Candlewood Suites and kind of a funky life, but I don't regret it. I see your uh, your next question is talk about my family. Um, my mom's still alive. My dad passed away like about five years ago, and um, my brother lives here, 
and he works. My brother Mark was, um, you know, an excellent pinball designer at one time, and has has made quite a few, you know, uh, beloved games. And uh, he now works at Raw Thrills. He's a video game producer there, and um, taking care of business on Big Buck Hunter and on Big Buck Safari and Terminator and um, uh, a lot of other games they make. Uh, I, he he lives like about six miles from me, and it's good to be back around him again, because uh, I was gone for a long time. We didn't see each other, but maybe once a year. So that's a cool thing, and, uh, you know, we're getting along. We're having a good time. And uh, that brings me to my return to Stern, and, uh, you know, I got here on, on March 1st, 2011, almost a year ago, and began work, and the... Uh, I walked in the door after they hired me, and uh, they said, what do you want to do? And I go, I want to make an HCDC pinball machine. And at first, Gary grumbled, but um, there's a new management here. I don't know if you know that, but we have venture capitalists, and they play a pretty big part in the management here now, and it's much different uh, and much better. Uh, yeah, good. They encouraged me to go for it and get it done, and... Uh, and, and helped out, and we did. We bought the ACDC license, which has been magnificent. And the reason why I say it's magnificent is because, I don't know, people don't know this maybe, but, okay, ACDC, they're, they're a bunch of old guys playing rock, but the tunes are everywhere. I mean, Back in Black is played on every Walmart commercial you hear. Um, uh, almost every kid, okay, 10 years old and older, has a few ACDC songs on their iPod. I did not know that uh, <laughs> when I first started, but I found all this out. And then, of course, you have this huge, you know, base of, uh, uh, you know, 24, 25-year-old to, to 60-year-old guys and ladies who love their music and remember it. And so they're, it's, and it's not just in the United States. I mean, it's like they are loved everywhere in the world, I can say that. I mean, it's just like, they're huge in South America, in England, France, Germany, Poland, um, Russia. They're huge in Russia. They're huge in China. People love them in Australia. Of course, that's where they're from. Uh, South Africa. Um, virtually every part of the world uh, has a huge ACDC fan base. And um, it's the magic of their music. It's like the lowest common denominator of rock, in my opinion. And uh, But it's like, it's just, it's like probably a better demographic than I could get out of any movie, except for maybe Spider-Man. I figure little kids in Fiji, on the island of Fiji, know who Spider-Man is, okay? They probably know about ACDC, but maybe, you know, maybe not. But uh, everywhere else in the world, they're just so huge, so... Um, I latched on. We got with them. These people have been great with us. Uh, they let us have just about everything we wanted. Uh, we get we got 12 complete songs. And what complete means is for a while the music industry was saying, yeah, you can play, you know, 20 seconds of this tune. Well, at Stern, in fact, at every pinball company, none of them was ever able to play 12 full songs from anyone. We just didn't have the memory. So... We expanded it, and then we began to look at the sound system and treat it scientifically, okay? We looked at the cabinet and what speakers, you know, resonant frequency would be great, would be the best and most efficient. Um, that word was resonant, resonant frequency, a, uh, a parameter of speaker and cabinet design that's, you, you need to know that about a speaker before you can decide you know, how big it should, how big the cabinet should be and how it should be constructed. Anyway, we looked at everything. We found that uh, we were eating up 50% of our base output by cutting notches in the bottom of the cabinet instead of cutting out a whole 8-inch circle for an 8-inch speaker and putting in a grill. We found that that was eating 50% of our base. What a difference that made, just that. Oh, wow. um, the person who really did all this work is David Thiel. He's also our sound guy, and he's producing a lot of sounds and, and uh, busting up pieces of ACDC music for us so we can put it in the game, cleaning it up, um, equalizing it also. He also discovered that if we had a crossover network between the speakers uh, in the back box and the one in the cabinet, that we would get an additional boost, hmm. not just in power, but in clarity. 
And then he came up with the magic thing. He said, if you take those two speakers in the back panel, don't connect them in parallel. Instead, connect them in series with a capacitor, and up you will get an incredible amount of overhead. And overhead is the amplifier's ability to put out big power while still having a reserve. When you crank an amplifier up to its maximum, it starts to clip and distort. So we are no longer anywhere near the distortion level. Oh, um, cool. These, these changes were, they were incredible for the pro. I mean, you just heard the difference immediately. Everybody did. And then, uh, you know, to top that, we, we also found a way that, well, with more memory, we didn't need to compress the, the basic data so much either. So we uncompressed it, and the music sounded clearer and stronger and better in every way. This is, the Pro is the best-sounding pinball machine that was ever made. There's no question. And the LE is even more magnificent. We have a different equalization of all the songs to account for the presence of a 12-inch bass speaker in the cabinet, and it just kicks ass. It's amazing. And that is by far the best-sounding pinball machine of any of all time. Gary came in. Gary Stern came in my office and listened to it the first time playing Back in Black, and he almost started crying. I mean, it was like, <laughs> like holy shit. You know, wow, this is great. And everyone's been affected, everyone. And even at the arcade with our pro we have on test, a loud, noisy arcade, everyone hears the music and everyone <laughs> recognizes it as being better, and it doesn't have the 12-inch speaker. It's got an 8-inch. And so yeah. it's just been outrageous. And we all we, we figured, you know, Lyman and I, Lyman Sheets, the programmer, um, that the music is extremely important in this game. And um, also, we don't stop the tune every 10 seconds. We don't have an area on the play field that is, you know, dedicated to one song. When uh -huh. we start a song... You can play that song uh, for as long as you want. You can play that song for the remainder of the game, but as soon as you go up in the top hole, you'll be offered a choice. Would you like to change the tune? And there are different areas on the play field, like we have the, you know, the rock and roll train ramp on the left and the highway to hell on the right, and we've got, you know, the hell's bell bell, and we've got, you know, it's actually got a plastic bell on the play field. Um, the LED has one that swings with a pendulum, and it's great. It's just fun. I can't explain it. You'll see it. There's a, there's a cannon in the game for those about to rock. I mean, ACDC uses them in their act. Um, and this cannon is a lot like the T2 cannon or the Star Trek cannon, except for I put it in a place where it can hit a lot more targets than either one of those games could. Um, they can hit, like, uh, um, you know, banks of targets, go up, uh, you know, make an orbit shot, go up a ramp, hit the bell, um, it's it's just a lot of fun. And then I added a fire button right in the middle of the hand protector. That's a big old, like a flipper button on a pedestal. And then I cut a really nice laser-cut piece of stainless steel with the holes cut right through that say fire on both sides of the button and ACDC down below. And it just adds so much, I can't explain it. And, and that button has no wires going to it. The button actuates a switch. So when you want to open up the pinball machine, you don't have to deal with anything. You pull it off like any other hand protector, pull the glass out, and do whatever you have to do. It's just really beautiful and nice. And um, ACDC is a rocking game. It's just, uh, it, the Pro is, you know, it's, 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 it's starting to get a great reputation as a fun game. Um, Lyman's writing some great rules and... Um, I'm I am and Bob, but not very much. Lyman's Lyman is the is the rule master as far as I'm concerned, and he's uh, you know, it, we talk about some things, and he is such a great player. Lyman Sheets is uh, you know, one of the best players in the world, and and that that part of it, you know, I have some trouble with. We have occasional disagreements, but not often, because I'm not I'm not a great player, but I represent every man, and I want to make sure every man gets a chance to have a great time on the game. So we developed a front end. Um, what I mean by the front end is, I mean, that's the part that the players first see of the game, what the rules they have to deal with and all that. And I like to make sure that's satisfying. Everybody gets to fire the cannon at least once. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you catch on quick to where, where, you know, what to make, uh, what shots to make. It just happens, really. And um, <clears throat> you're rewarded with huge crowd roar whenever you do something right. And the music, I don't know what it does to you, but, I, you know, it, it kind of makes you feel like a rock star right? because the applause is for you every time you make a shot. 
you know, and, and score points. It's just, plus it's exciting. I mean, you just tap your foot in time with the music, and it's like the crispest, cleanest game, and we don't switch tunes all the time. If you want to, you can hear the whole damn song, and I mean every note, and you can even start it over if you play it long enough, or you can pick another tune at any time. And we've got a great lineup of tunes. You know, it's like, you know, 12 of ACDC's best tunes, and uh, it's just fun. On the LE, though, we're talking about, on the LE, we're talking about an unlimited bill of materials, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, they didn't tell me you can only spend this much money. They said, make the game you want to make. Oh, awesome. I, I made the game to be what I wanted it to be. With one, You know, I, Wyman and I are involved. I'm involved in his software. I let him get involved on the play field because he's a very experienced guy. And, he, you know, we're going we're gonna to think of better things together. The, the, uh, the sum is, you know, much greater than the uh, – oh, the total is much greater than the sum. I'll put it that way. And um, Yelly has a lower play field with a ball and two flippers and three stand-up targets, and it's hell. That's where it is. That's, you know, it's like red flames down there in the artwork, and I've got it lit up with, with LEDs and a perforated ball guide that has a ton of holes in it, letting, letting light into the lower play field. And it looks hellish, and it looks nice. It's fun. And then um, on the LE, I've got, um, well, I've got a crossover uh, track, like Simpsons, uh, where if you send the ball up to the left ramp, a gate will come down, the ball will cross the play field diagonally up overhead, and then go into the right ramp and go and load the cannon. And oh. um, uh, the LE has a miniature, uh, you know, rock and roll band, four inches by ten inches long, and all the players sway back and forth, Angus and, you know, all, all, the, all the members of the band, and Phil Rudd, the drummer's drumsticks go up and down in time with the music. It's just awesome. It's like a little Swiss music box toy and uh we've got millions of cycles on it in test it's like it's going to hold up beautiful i'm happy about that because it's going to have to rock back and forth you know yeah um uh yeah we has uh well they both have a jukebox in the back where you select songs and it looks like a jukebox page with horns on it um Yelly has a bell that swings back and forth. Uh, it's a pendulum hanging down with a ball on the end. And so the whole bell swings, and there's a switch to, to record how many times you do it. And it's the exact sound from Hell's Bells. This is a bell that they recorded with 24 microphones when they first recorded Hell's Bells. It's a bell in England, actually. And um, this bell makes that same sound, and it's just fun to hit it. I can't explain it. You start it swinging. Sometimes the pendulum ball smacks the ball right back at you. Sometimes the ball goes underneath it. Behind that, there's like a high-powered kicker and a magnet where we can start the bell swinging by itself. It's very interesting. We can swing it back and forth and then have you make a shot underneath it, a skill shot. You know, when it's up, you, you try to get in the hole behind it. Um, we can also stop the bell with a magnet, stop it dead. We have... 16 multicolored LEDs in the game, which can be told what color to be at any time we want. And they're all under clear inserts. So I've got three inserts that spell axe up the top in the lanes above the jets. If they're green, I can award you a lock. If they're amber, I can award you an extra ball. If they're red, I can award you a special. If they're purple, I can give you something else. And these things are going to, you know, I also have uh, three of those down below in hell, and it's like a double face, two eyes and a mouth. And the mouth is going to modulate like when I'm speaking. And I'm the devil. Anyway, <laughs> um, the eyes are there. You're, the, uh, there's two targets by the eyes and one for the, the mouth, and you, you punch them. Basically, you're hurting him, and he's going, ow, oh, oh. You know, it's like you're smacking him in the face, and his eyes can turn purple and red and Basically black and blue. I mean, <laughs> anything we want. It's fun. It's just, I don't know, never before in a pinball. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're writing to this. Okay, uh, another factor. Uh, the LEDs, it's all LEDs, even the GI from the factory. Like, it's already pimped out. And uh, it's beautiful. Wow, it's got an awful lot. I mean, more than I've ever put in any pinball machine. It sounds amazing. I can't wait to check it out. <laughs> Here's another interesting thing. We, we sold 500 LEs in five days. They're gone. Yeah, wow. Before we could even build them. 
and no <laughs> one has seen them. <laughs> Except so, for some pictures of Whitewood, somebody snuck onto the web, and uh, and, and that's it. Um, I would imagine some of the guys in the band probably purchased one, huh? I don't know. I have no idea. We're not in touch with them. Uh, We're in Australia, and um, I'm not sure if they're pinball fans or not. We dealt with their management. His name is um, Alvin Handworker, great guy, and uh, he's uh, reasonable, just reasonable, a human being, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's and, great. Um, and he understood perfectly what we wanted to do, and um, basically I told him what we wanted to do. And then we started dealing with uh, a crew at Sony because they had the rights to the music, and they have been extremely reasonable. It's just like... I don't know. Licensing heaven. I've been I've been through some miserable ones, and this one was just as smooth as glass. So, is that what you're working on right now? The LA, just like on the production mode, uh, or do you actually making drawings for the manual right now? I'm yeah. not going to start another game for a while. I just can't. But you know, that'll be starting up in uh, probably a month or so. I've got a lot of shows to do. I'm going to Germany to do a show in May. I'm going. I'll have the game started by then. I'm going to the Texas Pinball Festival, where I will speak, and, and I'm going to uh, England, South Coast Slam, uh, to greet those people. And by then, I'll have a good handle on the next game and a, you know, a lot of it done. What, where would people go to uh, learn more about you or to find out where you're going to be at what shows? The best place is sternpinball.com. Um, if you want to know what, what our, uh, you know, the way things are going, our launch parties. In fact, there, there's there's going to be a launch party out on the West Coast if you want to go see ACDC. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so go to, Stern and find, go to SternPinball.com and find out where it is and, um, and, and go to that. I will have some ACDC artifacts for sale on my uh, website, which is SteveRitchiePinball.com. That's not far off either. I have brochures, and I'll have uh, translites, you know, the back glass insert um, for sale, autograph. And that's about it, Jack. Is there anything else you'd want to mention? I just want to say thanks to pinball fans everywhere. You know, they, uh, without them, we would have uh, nothing. We would not be making machines. Uh, so it's, it's really great that they... Uh, they're out there, and they appreciate pinball, and we appreciate them. Oh, this has been great. I really appreciate it again, Steve. Thanks, Steve. All right, man. Take it easy. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Steve Ritchie for that amazing interview. Make sure to check out his website. He's got lots of swag and stuff that you can buy, signed by him. Uh, pretty neat stuff. And, of course, Stern Pinball to see what he's working on next. Thanks for checking out Music Live Radio, and we'll catch you next time.